inspiring leadership is not necessarily what you say and what you do, but how you make people feel. Welcome to Inspiring Leaders, the podcast that shares ideas, perspectives, and best practices from great leaders around the world to help you become a more inspired leader. Hey, welcome back to the Inspiring Leaders podcast. I'm your host and executive coach, Terry Lepofsky. And today we're taking you to Frankfurt, Germany to explore some completely unique perspectives and philosophy on leadership with a fabulous discussion with a great business philosopher. So to get started, I want to introduce you to our guest today. Anders Inset is a Norwegian author, public speaker, and lecturer who's now based out of Frankfurt, Germany. Anders, welcome to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you so much, Terry. It's a pleasure to be with you. Anders, I can't wait to explore some of the ideas and thoughts with you. But before we do, I have a question for you. Who or what inspires you and why? I must say I get inspired by a lot of people, and uh, I also get a lot of inspiration from my daughters. I think my inspiration is that I have the luxury or I have the privilege to get up in the morning and just be curious and want to learn the uh, passion, just learn new stuff. So it's very simple. I get up in the morning. I'm like one of those old black and white TVs. I have one button. It's on or off. I'm very inspired by this journey that I've started. And I'm very curious, and that is maybe my source of inspiration. But that said, you know, there are so many people that I listen to and talk to, and so many, I would say, situations in life where you get inspiration from people that you would not read about in media or hear about, but you would just talk to them and see that they have a story behind the story that you can dig into. I'm very easy to inspire, I believe, because I'm very inspired by my own journey. I like the fact that you said that your daughters inspire you because I'm in the same boat. My daughters inspire me. I have to share with people our introductory conversation that we had even before we started recording. Here we are in opposite ends of the world. And I mentioned to you that it's a great day over here. And you said it's always a great day. I sort of did a double take when you said that because it took a second for it to sort of sink in what you said. And I think what you're saying is that every day, every day that you're here is a great day. I think you just generate inspiration based on where you're at, wherever you're at, don't you? The quoting, the great AA mile, today is my favorite day. It was where we got into this. I think most people in, can influence their own perceived reality to a much broader extent than they believe. So we tend to get sucked into models or general topics that drives us much more than we drive the day and we create. So we are a production or a product of the forces of change, our outside world, much more than we are driven by our own possibilities. I think that we live in a world of possibilities or potentialities, and we are also as a species or as a mensch or a human being, our own universe of potentiality. And I think we need to exploit that. It has a lot to do with consciousness and awareness. And once you tap a little bit into that, you just realize that there is so much more to it that you can influence and that you can also take control to some extent and create your own reality to a much broader extent than most people do today. I just have to stop for a second because I've never had anybody on this show who's ever mentioned A.A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh. So just for that alone, I think that you're going to get one of these lovely little bells here. How about this? 
There we go. A little bell for you, Anders. How about that? <laughs> Keep them coming, Terry. I like the bells. <laughs> I just thought that was so unique. I had to recognize that one. I just want to bridge to what it is that I really hope that you'll talk about here today. I know that you've become quite a legend in the business world, and I think it's through your unique ability to bridge the philosophy of the past with the science and technology of the future and kind of merge those into where we're at today. And, and in speaking with you previously, I've heard you describe some pretty powerful concepts and perspectives that I think are vitally important for our audience of leaders to hear. So without getting in your way and try to interpret your thoughts and ideas, there's no way that I could ever put things like I know that you do. I would love it if you would share with us what you're seeing today, how it can be influenced by the past, and how the changes that are coming will impact us. Terry, I think that a challenge has been that we haven't been very good at working interdisciplinary and talking together about the various progresses that we have in various fields. Today, I see a movement in consciousness amongst the spiritual young people, at least from what they say and how they perceive our enlightened young beings. And at the same time, we have quantum physics and quantum physics talking about, you know, relations and energies and all that. So, so it kind of feels like a lot of the disciplines are moving together. And I think that progress for humanity will come when we look in the interspaces between the disciplines. Like when psychoanalysis teams up with neuroscientists and quantum physicists to work with philosophers, to look in the interspaces between the discipline to seek progress. Because I think that within the next decade, humanity is confronted with two existential challenges. Right. One, how do we cope with the ecological breakdown or collapse? We talk about global warming. I'm from a small town in Norway where it gets down to minus 40 degrees Celsius in wintertime. Ouch. <laughs> so a global warming wouldn't do us any harm. In fact, it would feel kind of comfortable. Or we talk about change, a terminology that we have taken up now as something positive. Yeah. So I would like to switch it to an ecological collapse. I like that, yeah. How do we avoid that? I think that's the one challenge. The other challenge that I see is how do we cope or how do we want to live of the progress in exponential technologies. And a lot of these things that are now on the plate of leaders of organizations around the world are all philosophical questions. And we live in an interdependent world, in a world society that knows no territorial borders for energy or terrorism or information, capital or environment. The challenges are now for all of us to solve I'm not so sure that politics will be the one drivers leading the change. I think politics is there to manage and try to stabilize, kind of sort of react when the pressure gets too high and they can get some votes out of it. So we need leaders. On the plates of the leaders of the organization today, you find a lot of philosophical questions. Yeah. My journey was basically, I was living the life of a hardcore capitalist. I wanted to make a lot of money. Everything on the outside was important. And I've always had philosophy as this hobby of mine that I didn't really know what to do with and to use. When I sold my company, I started to dig much deeper into philosophy. And I had been a very, very passionate student on all the leadership and management methodologies. And I started to map this to the ancient philosophical thoughts and methods and basically the hidden secrets 
that are hidden in plain sight from the past. And I started to think, you know, what would Nietzsche or Spinoza or Wittgenstein or Heidegger or back to Plato and Aristotle, what would they be thinking if they lived in the world today? All of a sudden, it makes sense. So it just said to me that, how can I project their thoughts and ideas onto the 21st century? How can I take out of these long or very complex German sentences and try to simplify it? Because I think the biggest challenge of the 21st century is simplicity. In order to simplify and get people on board, you need to have a broad understanding. And that was my journey and my challenge. With that, I discovered a lot of challenges and new approaches, how to combine business and philosophy and the economy to these types of thinking. Instead of looking at human beings as resources or human capital or efficiency that we all know that technology will be much better at, I started to look at what will happen once we get this digital wave and the AI buzzword tapped into our bodies and some kind of understanding, what will happen then? And I think that 10, 20 years from now, in the organization, we will need a lot of philosophical contemplation. I believe that we could use some of these thoughts and methodologies and make them applicable for the business world. We could talk a lot about various topics, be it the organization or the leadership styles. But basically, this has been my journey, and it's still very much the beginning of a long journey, where I believe that philosophical contemplation will become indispensable and also will be a key to solve the challenges ahead. It seems to me that you are the kind of person that doesn't mind wading right into the deep end on things. You bite off some pretty ambitious projects. I know that from some of your past business dealings, but also just from what you described right now. Taking a look at this precipice that we're standing upon right now with vast change in front of us, and actually, maybe a precipice is not really the right metaphor for this. Maybe it's a great forest that stands before us. We know that at some point in time, we're going to have to stand on the other side of that forest. But as we stand here, we don't see the path. We're not sure exactly which is the best way through this maze in front of us. And I think what you're doing is you're actually taking a look behind us at our past to people with brilliant thinking and deep thinking. You're looking to some of those sages from the past, seeing if there's any wisdom that will help us to find our path through that forest. And I got to respect that. That is really something that I don't see a lot of other people doing, but yet there's such great value in it. So thank you for wading into that deep end and jumping into that forest for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's a very egocentric journey because it's something that I love doing and I want to exploit it. What I've seen is that we have not been very good at predicting stuff. We are very good at explaining what happened and finding cause and effects and mixing them up. But what we have seen is that there was always some kind of crisis. When things happened, there was new technologies coming in. We called them a revolution because we saw them. It was actually a reaction to a technological change that happened a lot earlier. New people came and took the authorities and the powers of capital or the values. People replaced other people through the technology that they exploited. As time goes by and technology speeds up, these time periods become shorter and shorter. And with every crisis, we have reacted. So we've been living in some kind of reaction society. So when we say revolution, it is actually a reaction. Like we have today is like ISIS, Brexit, Donald, and all that stuff is basically a reaction to 1994, the internet, Netscape 1.0. These phases become shorter and shorter. 
what we have done, I believe, is that we have created what I call the fatal information society, where we grow up and, and wake up every day. The gap between what we could know and what we do know gets bigger and bigger. It's very frustrating. And this is a jungle that we're in or the forest that you described. And it actually also recent studies from our home country, Norway, which is a country that is together with Sweden, maybe some of the you know, early adapters of news changes, shows us that our IQ level also decreases. So the gap, we are you know, waking up a little bit dumber uh, and, and the frustration grows. And this is the fatal information society. Fascinating, yeah. Yeah, and now technology is going to come and save us. So blockchain, machine-generated trust and total transparency. We will start next year with the algorithms getting a lot better, validating every data information that we have. And it takes away that. And we start to rely more and more on the algorithms. And from my viewpoint, we turn more and more into zombies. And there are many people talking about these types of developments. I call it becoming the obsolete species, homo obsoletus. And I've been looking at this for the past 10 years, how this is basically evolving slowly. And now it's really speeding up. And we think that now we should create a knowledge society. But as we all, knowledge is not understanding. So when we have a knowledge society, we walk around like zombies reacting to every impulse and every piece of data because this data has been validated. But progress will not be find, found in the old information and to looking at old data, but to things that we create, mostly through mistakes or some kind of other ways. So if you want to avoid becoming these obsolete species, we need to start now to develop a society of understanding. And that involves tapping into our emotions, our sensory experiences, our values. Just because we can do a lot of stuff with technology doesn't mean we should or that we have to do it. And I think this is a critical maybe mistake or misinterpretation that we're doing right now, that we are handing over for the first time in human history. The authorities are not going from human beings to human beings, but they are going into algorithms. And we are blindly relying on the algorithms. That is a deterministic society, a society of a, that is predefined and that will only be reaction uh, mode type of beings living in some kind of digitized world where we only react to impulses. And I think this is very, very dangerous. And that is why we need to develop new models and new perceptions or a new Weltanschauung. Um, how we see the world. Anders, you know, uh, my hand is up. My hand is up because I'm guilty as charged on this one. I've become lazy when it comes to information. And I think it started back in the late 90s when the Palm Pilot first came out. I thought to myself, you know what, I can't remember anybody's phone number. I started relying on that kind of easy access to information. And it made a difference for me. But I got to tell you now, if I'm not remembering, let's say, the company that somebody works for or some small detail, I'll turn to Google and I will Google something rather than relying on my own memory. And so that access to fast, easy information that sits in my pocket every day, it's becoming all too magnetic. And I think that that inertia and that magnetism is there for everybody. We are all looking for the easy access to information that I think you're describing. So how is it that we can resist that temptation and we can develop or cultivate that wisdom that you're talking about, that it's not just the information and the access to information and relying on all of the servers out there that are working in cooperation with each other, but it's using that in a smart way, in a wise way, 
to come up with the right answers and to chase the right problems. How can we do that? A lot of things that are to solve, we don't even know how to address them. We don't even know the question. So it's very clear that we cannot come up with the answers. I think that technology as such will obviously help us solve a lot of unsolvable problems. Technology is great. Taking care of diseases, it solve a lot of issues with poverty. We can bring energies to the rural villages of every African small village today. There were two girls from Indonesia started a movement called Bye Bye Plastic Bag. They were 13 and 15. Now the girls are 17 and 15. Within a very short period of time, the whole world got to rise on plastic. And we are flushing down our contacts down the toilet or down the drain every single day. We are taking the microplastic in back into the ocean and then basically eating the fish again with all this microplastic. And it took like a whale that stranded in Norway with 40 huge plastic bags in his stomach you know, to wake up the society. And all of a sudden, technology helped us build up all these you know, mechanisms to clean up the oceans. And all kinds of stuff is going on in that field. Technology, on one hand, will obviously help us you know, solve a lot of issues. But what I'm talking about is that it is also a big challenge for how we have organized the world. So take democracies. We are trying to uphold a structure of democracies in a lot of countries. And that's not working for us. We tried dictatorship. Uh, now we try democracies. And now, you know, the question comes, what will be next? Will we go back to some kind of tribal society? I am sure that cities and the, and the villages and, and the metropole regions, that they will be like a political center. I don't think the nationalist movement that we're seeing is something of sustainable change for society. I think we're going to go back to the mayors will have some kind of woodstock where mayors from various countries and various cities get together and create stuff. And I think that we will have a lot more interdependent structures on a global scale. But until we get there, we have these structures that people can go out and vote and they vote based on their feelings, how they feel for a particular topic. True. So in, in Germany, people were against the European Union and they wanted to have the, the Deutsche Mark back. And six months later, it just flipped. And the same thing we see for, you know, the UK. UK was confident that leaving the European Union was a good idea. Felt right. Uh, when I now visit London, um, it doesn't feel good anymore. You know, they're saying, no, it feels crappy. And I strongly believe that they will go back and vote next year or maybe the year after. And 52, 55% will say, you know, we want to stay in the European Union. And they will stay there because it feels different. A friend of mine from Finland, he's a biohacker. And we are looking also how we can hack the body and take up nanotechnology and biotechnology and merge it with AI. When we start to do that, you know, we hack our feelings and emotions. So basically, we can influence the political systems and our social structure in a much, much broader way than some Facebook advertisements or some data that you know, maybe came from Russia to influence the U.S. election. This is a big challenge. The same goes for our economic system. We have a neoclassical capitalistic system based on Adam Smith's core. It's a good system. It was a good system because we wanted to have some kind of materialistic basis. Today, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy, we are at the bottom, what we need, our basic needs. We think this, this hierarchy is very broad at the bottom. So having two Ferraris and five houses <laughs> is all a part of our basic needs. Right. So it's very easy to project that with technology in every field. It will be a battle of the algorithms. 
and everything with our resources and challenges, the materialistic worldview of doing business and economy will not work. So we need something new. I think that this will be finding business model based on vital energies, moving faster up the hierarchy, uh, and tapping into how to capitalize on some of things such as understanding or values or feelings or maybe even love. Uh, we see a very successful app out in the market, Headspace. It's a capitalistic monk, if you like. It's not the thing that would pop into your mind when you talk about meditation or spiritualism, but it's basically just training your mind. And I don't know how many million users this app has now gotten, but this is the new world. This is the parallel society that I talk a lot about, the quantum reality where on the one side we see downfall, on the other side we see prosperity. So in order to move on to some kind of new world, you know, something else needs to suffer and go under. And I think this is the challenge that we have because in previous time epochs, we have been able to react. I think at one point we cannot afford to react anymore. And that is why I strongly believe that we need to put our whole understanding into new topics and now start to work on these challenges. You know, just speaking with you for this short period of time, it's fascinating. It's wonderfully fascinating and thought-provoking. I think that the way that you approach a lot of the problems that we are staring at today, a lot of the way that you look at the forest that stands before us and look at it through a combination of a telescope to look forward and a rearview mirror to look backwards, I think that what you uh, bring to the table is very valuable insight and very valuable information. And I hope that we have a lot of folks that look at the show notes after they're done listening to this show, look up your contact information and that they get in touch with you. Because Anders, I think that you deserve to be up on a stage speaking to a lot of people about this. And I think that a lot of people out there would be a lot better off by picking up the books that you're writing, looking at your website and really tuning into your message. But for the sake of time, I've got to ask you two last questions here. The first one is this, Anders, what challenges do you see facing a lot of the leaders out there today? Um, tapping into what you said before, I think one of the problems is education. So we are still educating children to become industrial workers of the 20th century. So the leaders are obviously also coming out of the same particular models and structures, and they are not in a situation today that they can quickly adapt to new environments. They don't have the skepticism or the philosophical methodologies to look at things from a different perspective and to question stuff. One of the challenging that they face today is obviously the complexity of the society. Right. That comes also with the speed. I think technology is a challenge for many. I think this is not new, but it's crucial, is that there are leaders and there are good leaders, and good leaders tend to be good at working with people. I think that is the clue. Basically, if you can work with people, if you can include people, then obviously it's easier to, to move on and tackle uncertainties and to create new business models and to adapt to new environments. And I think that is the biggest challenge is today is the complexity of our society. I like what you said previously as well. I mean, I love your answer to this, but I love how you summed it up a little earlier when you said we're living in this ocean of complexity and our challenge today is figuring out what's important and simplifying. I think that it kind of comes down to what you described. Now, you've given me a perfect bridge to our final question. What does inspiring leadership mean to you, Anders? 
<laughs> well, I think also here we can learn a lot from philosophy. I talk about dialogue, about collaboration, co-creation. Inspiring leadership is not necessarily what you say and what you do, but how you make people feel. I think that you could have people read stuff, you can talk about stuff, the blah, blah, and they can forget it. You can show them how to do things and they might, you know, tap that or, or take that, but you can include them and you could do experience-based learning. You can involve your people into the situation, into the project, into the discussions, and you can, you know, listen to them and get them into the dialogue. And with that, you create a culture of co-creation where everyone participates. And inspiring leadership to me means tapping into the feelings and getting people to feel stuff because only then they will have that particular something that they cannot really describe. When you ask people, can you name a good leader? You know, everyone can because of their sensory experiences, their feelings that this leader managed to provoke or evoke within in the human being. And I think that is to me uh, the essence of leadership is to getting people to, to feel something. I can't tell you how well aligned I am with what you're describing. Anders Inset book, Wild Knowledge, pick it up. Anders, I know that you're also working on another book. What can we expect next from you? Well, first of all, I'm doing a very interesting project with Thinkers50, with some of the leading business thinkers of the world. Wow, big time. Yes, it's called Philosophy at Work. Yeah. We have gathered some colleagues and some friends around the world that are renowned experts and thought leaders in their fields. And they are contributing to a 50 reflections on how to bring philosophy to work. I divide that into personal development, leadership development, how to cope with change, and bringing philosophy into action. We have great contributions. This book is now in the making. We are gathering the contents, and I'll be doing quite a few articles and, and tying it all together. This will be out early 2019. And at the same time, I'm just finishing now the, the German manuscript of my next book, which is basically outlining a completely new uh, business model, a structure for our economy, based on what, a little bit what we talked about before, where I talk a lot about the relations to the quantum reality and, and how things are strange yet interdependent and how things moving forward, how we need to build new structures for society and for business in general. And this book will be out early 2019 in German, and we are just now negotiating for the global rights with various languages to come. So I'm sure by mid-2019, it will be available in many languages. So those are the two book projects I'm working on right now. And I'm also setting up a new business school structure with some new models of our academy for practical applied philosophy, the Shaping Work Academy, where we are taking some new approaches to leadership and technology education for the business world, for executive education and corporate education. And the final project that I'm very passionate about is that I'm supporting some young global change makers to set up a new vision for how young people can rebuild the structures of our world. It will be a global project in that context um, on the circle of wisdom to bring out some, some ideas and thoughts on how to set it up. So that will be also something that will be launching in 2019. So there's a lot of things going on, Terry. You're a very, very busy guy, that's for sure. <laughs> and I love everything that you're talking about right now. We got to have you back on the show once your next projects are out in the wild and people can pick them up. 
two books coming out, plus this other initiative working with young people. What a busy guy you are, but what an absolute bullseye you're hitting when it comes to this. Folks, I strongly encourage you to look into the message that Anders Inset has out there. Please head over to our show notes, click on his website, see what kind of messages he's got out there. Definitely worthwhile, and I think it's something that'll help all of us. Anders Inset, thank you so much for joining us today. What absolutely fantastic perspectives and philosophies. And thank you to every single listener out there for your time and attention. We absolutely appreciate you joining us here today. We hope that you'll like what you're hearing and that you'll subscribe and keep listening as we bring more leaders from around the world to help you become a more inspiring leader. Thanks, everybody. Take care and bye for now. Thank you.